back with you. If you have your story Bibles today, I'm going to have you start in page 170. If you have a standard Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Uh, for those of you with the story Bible today, it's going to be easy peasy. We're just going to be going around. For those of you with the standard Bible today, you're going to want to put a, a finger or a bookmark also in 2 Samuel 11. And you're going to want to put a bookmark in Psalm 51. For the folks with the story Bibles, real simple. We'll just be flipping around a little bit. But, but Second Chronic, or First Chronicles, I'm sorry, chapter 22. And then you're, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then finally Psalm 51. I've had, oh, here we go. Yeah. Has anybody watched online? It's pretty cool, isn't it? These people are doing a wonderful job filming for us. And while I speak of wonderful jobs, thank you to everybody who helped yesterday for our trustee work day. The exterior of the building looks beautiful. We're ready for Easter. So thank you for being part of that if you are part of that yesterday. Now, Lowell, this is the real one. Yeah, cut that out. The world doesn't need to see it. All right, here we go. All right, in your Bibles, good, good. I have seen a, a drama play out in my house over the past six to eight years that, that happens continually, and, and it does not end. It happens every week. It ends in tears every single time, and it happens all the time. And it's, it's when one of my children has decided to make something beautiful out of Duplos or Legos or construction paper, something that was truly meant to last forever, get destroyed by their younger sibling. And all of a sudden, I'll be upstairs, I'll be in another room, and I will hear a shriek of horror, no! And then fill in the blank, just pick a name. It could have been any of them. Broke my, destroyed my, colored on my, put glue on my, threw my in the trash. Fill in the blank for any one of these things that were supposed to last forever. I don't know what the shelf life is on a Duplo castle or a Lego house or a construction paper butterfly, and neither do my kids. They think that that should last in perpetuity to be admired through the ages. And, and when their younger sibling decides to destroy that, that is a devastating moment in our household. And it happens weekly. There is something in us that wants to create, wants to make something special, wants to have something that will last. One of the great psychologists of the last century, Eric Erickson, said that at the end of our lives, we face something called ego integrity or ego despair. Ego integrity is the idea that what we have done in our life mattered, that, that it made a difference, that it will last into the ages, but those who suffer ego despair, they, they get no such assurance. They are horrified that they did not do more with their life. Well, we're going to start this morning, and we're going to look at the lives of two guys who sort of wanted to build something that will last. One is King David, and he's going to be coming to the end of his life, and he's going to be wanting to be part of something that will last into the ages. But we're going to juxtapose that this morning because we've also seen another king in the last two weeks in the story, haven't we? We've seen a king named Saul. And, and, and the judgment on Saul leaves him in a place where he is not able to build something that will last. He is not able to be part of something for the ages. And the question is why? And I think by looking at the end and part of David's life and we look at part of Saul's life, we're going to be able to glean something this morning that is going to help us recognize how we can be part of something that lasts forever, something that is eternal, as opposed to ending our lives in despair going, I don't know that any of that mattered. Are you on page 170 of the story or in First Chronicles chapter 22? We're going to start with verse 7. 
David, towards the end of his life, said to his son Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and you have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. What a promise, and what a great way to end a life. David, this hero from the Bible, this important figure that we have read so much about or heard so much about, is ending his life and he says, God, I want to build a temple for your name, the name of Yahweh God, or as we have learned in the story, Yahweh means I am that I am. We've transliterated into English as Jehovah, but it means I am that I am, or like how I like to say it, existence himself. I want to create a temple for the name of the Lord my God. You see, David had in mind the great story that we have been thinking about over the course of the last 12 weeks, that, that God wanted to establish a kingdom, save the world through his people. And David understood that to do that, that the fame and the name of God needed to spread out from Israel and get all the way to places like Stowe, Ohio. That you know, He didn't know Stowe, Ohio. Maybe somebody did at that point, but he, he knew that God's name and his glory and his fame was to spread out so God could bless the world and save the world. And he wanted to build a beautiful temple for God. Remember, weeks ago, we talked about a tabernacle, a movable temple, a temple that was temporary. This was probably 450 to 500 years after that tabernacle has been built. I doubt it aged well. And he wants to build a temple, and God says, you can't. You can't, David. And the reason you can't is you're a warlord. You're a man of war. You've shed much blood on the earth, and I truly am a God of peace. Yes, there are times when God has to use judgment. Yes, there are times when war has been necessary, but God says that's not going to be what my kingdom is going to be made out of. It's not going to be about blood and conquering. It's going to be about peace and, peace and rest in God. So, David, you can't do it. But even still, if you read, this, read the story from page 170 on, David is mortgaging all of his money, all of his resources, all of his finances, all of his capital, all of well, just fill in the blank. He is giving it over to help Solomon so Solomon can one day build this temple, but God does make him a great promise. David, your son, your line is going to remain forever. I'm going to do something to make the folks that come after you eternal and everlasting. What a cool promise. But how did we get here? How did we get to this promise? I mean, after all, we sort of had this this beautiful vision of the people of God, right, who have come across the Red Sea, who have gotten the law of God at Sinai, who are given the promises of God, and they're to be a, a, a nation of priests. They're to have sort of a decentralized, egalitarian, love one another, take care of one another, be so in tune with God that they need no king. God's their king. But of course, we learned a couple of weeks ago in the story, they traded in their national identity, they put their hopes in, their future hopes in, the hands of a king and a kingdom. They wanted to be like the other nations. We want to look like them. And God, though his heart is sad and goes, okay, I can deal with 
being rejected. We've been doing that since the dawn of time. He said, I'll give you a king. And we're going to amend the plan of redemption and push it through this line of kingship. If that's what you want, Israel, that's what you'll get. And of course, they got Saul. Now, Saul was a good choice. He was tall. He was handsome. He was a good fighter. He even had an openness to God. We know that Saul even prophesied. But of course, we also know that Saul engaged in some things from which God ripped the kingdom out of his hand and gave it to David. And you heard all about that last week. David, a man after God's beautiful, all you Sunday schoolers. Right. He's a man after God's own heart. He is the psalmist himself. Read those 150 psalms. A whole bunch of them are from David. He plays the harp, for heaven's sakes. The man is impressive. He defeats Goliath on the battlefield for the name of the Lord his God. He is a powerful, powerful man of war. Greg, throw that map up for us for just a minute. Let's just see the success that David had. If you look at this, at this map, and I know you can't read the names, that's okay. You can see colors, unless you're colorblind, in which case this means nothing to you. Sorry. Anyhow, we have this, this purple. Sorry, once again, colorblind folks. You can see me after. This purple was the kingdom of Saul. Ain't looking so hot, is it? That green, that's the kingdom of David. David expanded the kingdom. David was a powerful, powerful king in general. And then the yellow that you see is at the top, those are actually kingdoms that by the end of Solomon's reign are paying tribute to Israel. So we go from this regional, small, little bitty kingdom to a regional sort of superpower for a time under David. Thanks, Greg. I mean, David was successful. David was humble. He had the chance to off Saul, didn't he? He didn't take it. He didn't take it. He let God elevate him to kingship. He wasn't going to do it himself. What a king. And you might ask at this point, all right, I get the fact that he was a fighter. We get it. But why couldn't, why couldn't you know, God just sort of made David the savior? Couldn't God in his power and wisdom just be like, David, you're going to last forever. Go and conquer the world. Couldn't God have just done that? No, he couldn't. First, God's kingdom isn't about conquering, is it? It's not about taking over. It's about bridging the gap between humanity and a God who cannot come close to them because of their sin and their rebellion. It's about bringing people back to God who have chosen to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden, which is to see everything that God had for them, and then to choose the other side of the coin. And David was just like us, and therein lies the problem and why he couldn't be the once and for all Savior, Messiah. Turn back, if you will, in your story, Bibles, to the beginning of this chapter, page 161, and for those of you who have a bookmark in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you will see why David could not be the Messiah. You will see why we have David so dejected on his throne. You will see why he could not be the Savior, but we're also going to see why there is hope in the midst of his circumstance. Let's read page 161, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 and following. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent his general Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. We'll stop there. Ammonites, bad dudes, plucked out eyeballs of the Israelites. Sick story. Let's move on to chapter 2, verse 2. One evening, 
David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. How could this be? I mean, this is a hero, a biblical hero in the line of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel. This this is, I believe, the only man up to this point who said he's a man after God's own heart. This is the man who risked life and limb against Goliath to uphold the name of the Lord his God. This is the man who wrote the Psalms, and this man does this. Sleeps with another man's wife. It doesn't seem right, does it? How could this happen? And, and, and that's the problem when, when we read it. It's like, how could this happen to this guy? To this guy? I mean, he, he would be the guy that all the rest of us in small group were like, oh, I love when he talks. He says the smartest things. And his prayers, super eloquent. It's like he writes them ahead of time. You know, this... This would be the guy who, like everybody just thinks, is the man. And this is the way that he acts. I believe, though, when we look at this story, if we truly look at the way the biblical writer passes it down to us, David had made space in his heart for this act long before that day. You say, Pastor Matt, how do you know that? Well, think about this in context. Look down at what happened here. David has ample opportunity not to do this. David has ample opportunity for the Spirit of God in him to go, hold up, hold up, no. You cannot do that, but that's not what happens. David is up on the roof, he comes across this site, and David did not do the eye bounce. If you don't know what the eye bounce is, that's something that we Christian men teach other men. When you see something that you shouldn't see, you go, huh, whoa, huh, and walk the other direction. That's the eye bounce. Teach it to your sons, mothers. Teach it to your sons, fathers. The eye bounce. You go, oh, shouldn't see that. Got to move on. David doesn't do that. Obviously, he lingered because he says, I need to go find out who that is. Now, think about this. He sends someone to find out about her. This took time, didn't it not? Think about this. This took time. Go find out who that is. So he sends somebody they trust. They run. They, They obviously have a conversation with somebody in that household and they come back and they report who she is, and they report that she's a married woman. Right? What does David do? Okay, well, that was, I don't even know why I sent you. That, I, that was sinful just to think that way. I, I'm going I'm to go write a psalm, play the harp, do something like that. That's not what he does. He sends somebody back to get her and bring her back to the palace. He was operating in full lust And he was operating in a full abuse of his power right in this moment. His heart had time to say no. But I believe that his heart was open to this act. And we get a hint as to why. We find out that by this time in David's life, he he had opened his life to polygamy. He had taken on multiple wives. 
And while that's not explicitly outlawed until the New Testament, it certainly wasn't God's ideal. Read Genesis chapter 2, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. (laughs) Not God's ideal. And I'm going to do a little talk this week for those of you who are like, why did God wait to outlaw polygamy? You can catch it on the website. I'll do it from behind my desk. I'll explain why. And you can watch that when you catch up with this video and watch it for the second time for that moment that just happened. So you can do that. You can do that. But, but, but David had already opened his life to that, an expression of his power. Because polygamy was an expression of power. It was an expression of wealth. And it was an expression of lust. His life was already open. And you might go to church now and again, and churches sometimes get a bad rap, and I guess some of them earn it. The churches always talk about sin. You go, to, you go to church, they talk about sin. They tell you what's wrong with you. Hey, this is wrong with you. You're a jerk. Come pray. We'll take care of it. We'll get out of here. That's, that's how so many people view church, right? But there's a reason the churches talk about sin, because, because these moments happen. If you allow space in your heart for something to take the place of the Lord, chances are it's going to grow. Chances are it's going to grow. Or you're going to let multiple things take that space. And though you're telling yourself all along, well, I'm never going to go too far, but there's all these things in your heart that are detracting from what God's trying to do in your life. That's how this happens to a man after God's own heart. Something took that place. Whether it was power, wealth, lust, or a combination of the three, something had grown in him, in his heart, to allow him at this moment. That's why we like to say sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will make you do things you said you would never do. And even a man after God's own heart can fall and fail. So what does he do? Well, Bathsheba's pregnant, time for a cover-up. He devises a brilliant plan. Hey, let's find out how the army's doing. Why don't you send Uriah back? He can give me the report. So Uriah comes back. He gives David the report. David's half listening. Okay, thank you very much. Uriah, head on home. See that beautiful wife of yours. That's the plan. Simple plan. But Uriah won't do it. He surmises that if the rest of David's army is still camped at Rabbah, he can't go home and enjoy marital bliss in his own bed while the rest of these guys are sleeping on the ground outside of Rabbah. David hears about it and goes, oh, no, Uriah, you have to go home. Calls him back and says, Uriah, go home. Uriah goes, no, I can't. Sleeps on the ground again. This is the moment that David should have come clean, but he doesn't. Look at page 162 or verse 14. David doubles down, and it gets worse. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote to Joab, put Uriah out in the front of the fighting where it's fiercest, and then withdraw some from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Skip down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing he had done displeased the Lord. Horrible. Horrible. David doubles down and murders this man so he can steal his wife. David was no savior. And if you're following the trajectory of the story from Adam to now, even the best 
people fail. No one can repair the breach between God and man. Even the best king, the one on whom all of their future hopes are set, can't be the savior. He can't be the leader forever of God's kingdom that will bring salvation to the world because he is just as big a sinner as the rest of them. It's a horrible, despicable act. And if you ever want proof that the Bible is legit, look at its heroes. All of them but Jesus fail. All of them but Jesus are just like you and me. Sometimes they look real spiritual and sometimes they look real worldly. Sometimes they're looking pretty good and sometimes they're looking pretty bad. There's some evidence right there. And David pays horrible consequences for his sin. His household is a mess for the second half of his life. If you want to read all of 2 Samuel, just get ready. It's depressing. He was in a position of great power and strength, and he abused that power, and he abused that strength, and God gave him a judgment. But God did not remove the kingship from him. Now, this is odd, because God has just removed from the kingship from Saul and his little purple kingdom. God has just said, Saul, you're done. First, God said to him through the prophet Samuel, Saul, your kingdom's not going to endure forever. Then he says, God's going to rip the kingdom from your hands. What did Saul do? Do you remember? Two things that happened at the end of chapter 10. One, Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice prior to going into battle. God had set up a dual system of leadership for his country. Samuel was the spiritual head. Saul was the head of the war department. And Saul makes the sacrifice because he is afraid of the enemy and that Samuel's not going to show up. He doesn't do what God had told him to do. And in that moment, God said, or Samuel said, God is telling me right now, Saul, your kingdom's not going to endure forever, and there is someone else who's going to be king after you. The second thing that Saul does is Saul goes and defeats the Amalekites, one of the arch enemies of Israel. The Amalekites had been meaner to the Israelites than the Philistines. And God said, don't leave any of the army alive and kill all the livestock. But when Samuel gets to the army after the battle, what does he find? Saul has kept back the best of the livestock, and he has spared King Agag. Why do you do something like that? Because you want to go home and gloat. You want to go home and say, hey, look at these beautiful sheep. Look at these beautiful cows. Look at these ugly but, but, but hale and healthy goats. And not only that, look, I'm the king. I've defeated those Amalekites who've been a thorn in our side for generations. Look, that's their king. And I brought him back in chains. And Samuel said, but because you did this, now God's going to tear the kingdom from you. Now when you look at those two things, you look at these sins, it's tough to compare them, isn't it? Apples and oranges. But I have trouble as a human being looking at David's sin and going, yeah, that's less than Saul's sin. I have trouble. now, And I don't think God does that. I don't think God is saying Saul's sins were greater, David's sins were lesser. That's not the story that the Bible is teaching. The Bible is trying to teach us something different. And if we can see the difference, perhaps we can be more of a David than a Saul when confronted with our failures. 
Do you know what Saul says when Samuel confronts him with the first of those failures? The fact that he made a sacrifice he wasn't allowed to make. You want to know what the Bible tells us that Saul said? Nothing. He didn't say anything. He turned around, he counted his men, and he said, let's go back to the battle. You want to know what David did when he's finally confronted with his sin? Well, let me tell you that story. The prophet Nathan comes to him. He says, David, I'd like to tell you a story. There was a man who was as rich as could be, had all the sheep in all the world. He had everything. There was another man, he had nothing. He had one sheep, but he loved that sheep with all of his heart. And that rich man who had all the sheep that he could ever want went and stole that other man's sheep. And David says, ooh, that burns me up. That man ought to die. And Nathan looks at David and goes, that man is you. Side note. Prophet Nathan is the awesomest dude in the whole Old Testament. Who says that to the king, right? He traps him, he's brilliant, then he has the audacity to say things that usually gets a prophet killed. Anyhow, that's the side note, worth the price of admission. This is what David does. For those of you in your story Bibles, it's on page 163. For those of you who put a bookmark in, it's on Psalm 51. And for those of you with a standard Bible, there's an interesting note. There's a note before the psalm. Is there not? It says in Psalm 51, this... And I'm paraphrasing, this was the psalm that David wrote when he sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, and this is what he turned over to be published. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David makes public confession and repentance, and he is sick about his sin. Saul was silent. David says, I'm guilty. I am a sinner. I have made a mess, and I can't get the mess out from the front of my face. God, whatever you do to me, it's right. Whatever punishment you inflict upon me, you're just. I deserve it. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Did he really think that? No, he knew that he'd sinned against Bathsheba. Knew that he'd sinned against Saul or, or Uriah. Knew that he had sinned against his nation. What is he saying? God, you have given me a place of authority and leadership and strength and power. You've given me everything that a man could ever want. <coughs> and I behave this way. Against you, God, have I sinned. And then he goes one step further. As he doubled down in the murder of Uriah, he doubles down in his own depravity. He says this, I was sinful from birth. I've always been this man. Don't think that the man who slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, don't think that that's a blip on my life's radar. 
You might think that I'm a man after God's own heart. You might think I'm a hero for slaying Goliath. You might be happy that I have done all of this for the nation, but I've been this way as long as I've lived. David rightly knew his position before the Lord. We don't have time to read the rest of the psalm, but probably the most telling line is he says, please, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't depart from me, God. I need you. I'm a mess, but I need you. See, David rightly understood that all he had and all he was was a gift from God. And David wasn't saying, God, don't take the kingship from me. He wasn't saying, God, please, I look bad, but don't make me look bad forever. That's not what he says. He lays it all out there and says, I understand that I am Adam. I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. David feared the Lord. I don't know who Saul feared. The second thing is very telling. When Saul spared Agag, Samuel was on the way to find out what had happened. And he says, has anybody seen King Saul? And a messenger boy looked at Samuel. He says, yes, Saul is headed that way with Agag and all those sheep. He says, he built a monument to himself, though. And now he's going back home to show off. That's my paraphrase, forgive me. Built a monument to himself. When Samuel confronts him with that sin and says the kingdom is going to be torn from you, Saul gets on the ground and he grabs Samuel's robe. He says, don't leave me, Samuel. No, not my kingdom. And he tore Samuel's robe and said, Samuel, Samuel goes, yep, that's what your kingdom is, torn. Samuel makes to leave, and Saul goes, Samuel, wait, 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 wait. Don't leave me right now. If you leave and they see you leave, they'll know you left, and that'll look bad on me. Could you please wait and, and be seen with me? Saul was about the name and the fame and the glory of Saul. Where do we find David at the end of his life? Page 170, 1 Chron Chronicles chapter 22. I want to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Archaeologists were baffled that they never found any monuments of David. In fact, it led some secular archaeologists, some who would like to disprove the Bible, to say, oh, there must have been no David. There's no, like, record of his buildings and palace. Now, of course, in the last 75 years, they've found multiple evidences that there was a David, that he wasn't a myth. And those archaeologists have been proven wrong. They didn't find any of David's monuments because David built no monuments. But within a few years of his death, there was a temple standing in Jerusalem. And he gave all of his money, all of his wealth, towards that project that his son got to complete. See, the difference between Saul and David was not only who they feared. Saul feared the enemy. Saul feared his own men. Saul feared having the kingship taken from him. David feared the Lord. 
But Saul was for his own glory and his own honor and his own fame and for his own prestige that people would think he was something great. David wanted people to know that I am is great. David was for the glory of God his father. He existed for the fame and the glory of God. David reminds us that he could not be a savior and in two ways he points us to a Messiah who is coming. In one way, we know that somehow through this guy's line, there is going to be someone who is going to change the world. They cried out on Palm Sunday, Jesus, son of David. David got to be part of something that would last forever because of the one he feared and the one who he honored. It's the difference between those two men. David feared the Lord and wanted to honor him with his whole life. Therefore, his sins could be forgiven. Therefore, he could do something that was eternal. But David was also a sinner. And it reminds us as we look at this story that we still need someone to come to defeat the age-old problem between God and man, sin and death. And this person might be in David's line, but this person needed to be far greater than David himself. The question I have for you is today, do you want to be part of something that will last forever? Do you want to be part of something that will last into eternity? Because you have that option before you. What David got to be a part of that lasted forever was not a temple. It was a heritage. And you're part of that heritage this morning. You are a son and daughter of the living God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you get to choose how to spend your life. Is it going to be a fear in man and for the praise of man and wanting people to applaud you and think you're great and think you're awesome and think you're successful and think you have more fun than other people and think you're more beautiful, think you're more handsome, think you got more stuff? Is it for the praise of man? Because then fear of men is what drives you. Or is it for the Lord? Would you publish your confession if you had been in that type of situation? Is being right before God more important than being thought of as great? Who do you honor today? What memories are you making? What monuments are you building? Are the memories and monuments that you're making today, are they all about you your future, your fun, your memories, your family? Or are you building monuments and making memories for heaven? Are you building something for the name and the fame and the glory of God? Because the truth is, Saul was called, David was called, you are called, I am called. But at the end of your life, will you be crying, not my kingdom? 
or at the end of your life will you be praising, yes, your kingdom. Whose kingdom are you building today? Let's build the kingdom of I.